I know too much from personal observation of how the poor and working classes live to be satisfied with a system which makes their lives one unceasing round of toil, deprivation and anxiety. I am a modern Eve. I offer you an apple, but an apple of a different kind, the apple of harmony, the idea of women going into Parliament. Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. What you just heard at the top are two quotations from Vida Goldstein, an Australian trailblazer for women's suffrage, an international leader for women's enfranchisement, and an undying peace and justice activist in her native land and on the world stage. In those two quotes, one hears the social and spiritual anthem of her life, elevating the human race through the granting of equal rights for women. And the voice reciting those quotations of Vida Goldstein is one of our guests today, Dr. Claire Wright, professor of history at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. She is the author of You Daughters of Freedom, The Australians Who Won the Vote and Inspired the World, published in 2018. It's the second book in Dr. Wright's Democracy Trilogy. The first book in the series, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, won the Stella Prize, which celebrates Australia women's writing. And Claire is familiar to the podcast medium. She has a podcast of her own called Archive Fever. Welcome, Claire. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for... uh, making time on the other side of the world. It's great to have you with us. And thank you for giving voice uh, at the top for Vida Goldstein. Anything for Vida, really. (laughs) Great. And also, we're so pleased to have in studio here in Boston with us, Tara Kutaya. Tara is a researcher here at the Mary Baker Library, and she wrote an article on Goldstein for the library's online Women of History series. Tara's piece on Goldstein was published this past September of 2019. It's great to have you with us in studio, Tara. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, Tara, I thought I'd I'd start with you. How is it that you became interested in writing a piece on Vida Goldstein for the Women of History series? So initially, I found out about Vida Goldstein through a question that someone sent in about her to the library. I'm a member of the research team, and people send in questions to us about the history of Christian science and the life of Mary Baker Eddy, and really anything on the subject relating to Christian science that they're interested in. So someone sent in a question about Vida Goldstein, asking if we had any information about her. I did find more information about Vida Goldstein in the form of research by Jillian Rowe. She came to the archives in 1998 to do research on a paper about Australian Christian scientists. And the paper was entitled Testimonies from the Field. And so we have that paper and co- other correspondence with Roe in our archives. So that's how I really learned the bulk of information about Goldstein. As I was reading this article, I really just wondered, why have I never heard about her before? And why have I never really learned about Australia's role in the suffrage movement? This is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, just as I looked into Vida Goldstein's life 
as relating to Christian science, um, her role as a practitioner, all of the charity work that she did, it made me realize that this isn't just a simple research question that I'm just going to <laughs> put into an email and then send off. There needs to be more about her and that it's important to have more people know about her. And I thought Vida Goldstein is a perfect candidate for writing a blog. Oh, that's great. So, Claire, is that name familiar to you at all, the woman who did research here of Gillian Rowe? Jill Rowe is a professor of history in Australia, um, mm. and her research into Vida Goldstein was really pathbreaking and was very instrumental in bringing Vida Goldstein back into historical consciousness. She'd really fallen by the wayside of history and in Australia, which is just an absolute crying shame because she had been such a superstar in her own day. Everybody knew her. She was the kind of Katy Perry or uh, <laughs> of, the, of the era, uh, Taylor Swift. She really was a rock star. She was reported in all the newspapers and she had thousands of people at the docks to see her off when she left for America in 1902 and, and again when she left for England in 1911. She had tens of thousands of people come and see her at the Albert Hall when she spoke in England in 1911 to the British suffragettes. She was uh, a major international global player in her own day, but she'd really been lost to history until Jill Rowe uh, exhumed her. Claire, how should we in the United States think about Vida Goldstein? How should we claim her? And how should we understand her in that larger context of what she did as a, as a real leader of international feminism? I've got to say I'm just so excited that Vida is getting some airplay and traction in the United States because it puts her squarely back into the position that she was over a century ago. Mm. When Vida Goldstein came to America in 1902, she came to the first women's international suffrage conference that was being held in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1902. And she came as the only enfranchised woman who was there mm. because... Australia became the first country in the world to give women full political equality with men as early as 1902 with the passage of the Franchise Act. Now, I've got to say that was white women. Indigenous women in Australia didn't get those same rights. Mm -hmm. But it did mean that Australia led the world in terms of democratic progress and in terms of finding an answer to the question, to the demand that was globally put to the parliaments and, and the power brokers and the legislators of the world, which was this question of giving women the vote. To many people's surprise, Australia was the first to come to the solution. New Zealand women had won the right to vote in 1893, and that made them the first country in the world to give women the vote, but they didn't get that right to stand for parliament mm -hmm. as well, which is what gave them perfect equality with men, what John Stuart Mill, the great liberal philosopher, called perfect equality. And so when Vida arrived in Washington, she arrived to great fanfare, so much so that President Roosevelt even invited her into the Oval Office. As far as I can tell, she's the first Australian to ever meet an American president at the Oval Office. And he did that because he wanted to see what one of these enfranchised women looked like. <laughs> part of the anti-suffrage message, part of the, the rhetoric um, and, and the argument against giving women the vote 
was that it was going to unsex them, that it was going to turn them into these manly creatures, that they would lose all their feminine charms. And so Roosevelt really just wanted to see her, to see whether she'd grown a second head or something, you know, had horns sprouting out of her skull. And so she came to the Oval Office, she knocks on the door, she comes in, she finds him sitting at the desk with his feet up on the desk, he jumps up, he, he thrusts his hand into hers, he shakes her hand heartily, and we know all this because she writes about it later, and he says, you're from Australia, I'm delighted to meet you. And the eyes of the world were trained on Australia, wanting to see what the results of this extraordinary social experiment of enfranchising women was going to, what it was going to do for society, whether the, whether the sky was going to fall in the way that was predicted. And here was Vida Goldstein standing there in his office. She was tall, beautiful, well-kept, very feminine. She had a charming voice. All of these things were always noted about her. And she had a wonderful meeting with the president and he was, like everybody, was charmed by her. And then she went on to address the Women's Suffrage Conference that was going on in Washington, D.C. And then she so overwhelmed the audiences there, including speaking in the Senate to an inquiry that was going on about women's suffrage at the time in Washington and, and making a case for why women should get the vote based on Australia's experience. And then she was so well accepted and and fated that she went on a three-month lecture tour of America. She went to New York, she went to Boston, she went from one side of the country to the other, giving lectures, talking about the Australian experience, and she was reported on everywhere that she went. So she really had this kind of level of fame and celebrity in the United States, as she would go on to have around the world. Um, But America, in a sense, was her her first port of call in becoming an international celebrity. For me, who has been researching and writing about Vida for at least the last 15 years, it's really exciting to see that she's starting to get a bit more recognition back in the States where she once was so fated and so celebrated, but unfortunately has just been lost to history. So, Tara, you explained that your research in Divided Goldstein deepened your interest in the subject of women's suffrage. So do you have any questions for or thoughts for our guests from across the world? I do. I have a few (laughs) thoughts, actually. Um, I've never really come across anything about Australian history and their role in the suffrage movement. So I got a chance to read your article, A Splendid Object Lesson. I liked the quote on page 29 of your article when you were talking about um, military heroes and that Wary Dunlop, Alex Campbell, and Simpson and his donkey are household names in Australia, but few Australians would be able to identify any of the Australian women whose determination, courage, and resourcefulness broke through the global glass ceiling of political discrimination. And I was just wondering if you could expand on this idea more, the contrast of masculinity and femininity, and also what you think are some of Goldstein and other Australian suffragettes' greatest moments of determination, courage, and resourcefulness. And how do you think we can shape these stories for future memory? Okay, three-part question. (laughs) So I'll go to the aspects of the women's suffrage movement that were in direct contradistinction to militarism. I mean, one of the things that is so interesting about the women's suffrage movement is that 
the idea behind it wasn't just that there was a justice aspect, that it was unjust that women didn't have the vote and men did. I mean, that certainly was part of it. There was a, um, a political, philosophical issue of justice. But it was also a question of what women would do with the vote, why women having the vote was so important. And one of the reasons was that they would be able to change the conditions of women's daily lives, the struggle and toil and poverty that they lived in, because women could have a hand in changing the laws. But more importantly than that, even, was a much bigger idea of changing the world. And what they wanted to do was to improve the spiritual and moral plane on which civil discourse was held. So the idea was that just as women raise children to share, to not squabble, to be able to dis- resolve their disputes amicably, so women who had political power would be able to solve the world's disputes in a more amicable way. So that they really saw themselves as not just the homemakers of the world, but the peacemakers of the world. And there was a very strong belief that women who had political power would be able to recast the future of humanity by ending war. We can say in, in hindsight, now that we've had a century of suffrage and now that we've had political leaders like Margaret Thatcher and military hawks like Hillary Clinton, that that might have been a utopian ideal but it very much motivated the the suffrage advocates at the time. And, you know, it's interesting, one of the main colours that the suffragettes wore was white, and and that has been something that's been picked up by feminists ever since. Um, Even during Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, her female supporters were often wearing white in Mm -hmm. support of her. Well, at the time, white symbolised purity, And there were other colours that were used in the suffrage movement as well, particularly purple and green. Green symbolised hope and purple symbolised courage. But white was really this universal symbol of the, the value and the virtue of purity and the idea that women embodied purity and that they were going to purify the world, that they were going to purify politics, that female politicians would be able to raise the tone of parliamentary politics. Uh, They would be able to make better laws. They would be able to hold politicians to account so they wouldn't be so greedy and corrupt, that they would be able to hold men account in their own homes so they couldn't be drunken gamblers who beat their wives and sexually abused young women, and that they were going to end prostitution, that they were going to end um, the drug trade, Now, all of these things in retrospect, as I say, sound sort of quite naive, but it's really important to put them in their historical context and to understand the force of these arguments. And and it's also one of the reasons why so many suffrage campaigners were attracted to spiritual practices like Christian science that were female-led and female-driven and had at the core of them this idea of the brotherhood of man and the spiritual cleansing of society. In terms of resurrecting these women's memories so that we all can kind of learn from both their successes and their failures, yes, I, I really do think we have to 
celebrate the successes. I mean, they were really up against incredibly strong forces of uh, of hostility and and vicious attacks on them, attacks on their on their morality, uh, attacks on their personal character. They were vilified in the press. They were caricatured and and cartooned. They were even beautiful, um, upright, elegant women like Vida Goldstein were were caricatured in the anti-suffrage press as being wizened up old dried out prunes and, and crones. They were called the shrieking sisterhood. They had to endure this kind of what what we would call today trolling. Mm. You know, um, mm. it, it really it really was extreme. So, Claire, I'm interested in pursuing this idea of a quiet spirituality informing a vocal political life, which seems to be uh, the case with Vida Goldstein. And in your book, you write, the Goldstein woman for whom getting the vote was as much a spiritual calling as the Christian science faith to which they now adhered. So, Tara, I'm, I'm curious, in your research in our collections, how did that nexus of spirituality, uh, Christian science, and politics sort of come together? So, yes, there's no clear indications of when Goldstein first heard of Christian science. But when she was a teenager around 1885, she was attending the Australian church in Melbourne with her mother and sisters. And the minister there, Reverend Charles Strong, he formed the Religious Science Club to examine religious questions, including world religions and comparative religions, in a scientific manner. And so that Christian science might have been one of the first faiths that they examined, and that's where she might have first heard of it. Melbourne was also one of the first cities where Christian science really gained a foothold and where a lot of people discovered it and converted to it. While Vida was first discovering Christian science, she also was discovering the suffragist movement, um, becoming involved in that party. So I think for her, religion and social change were always interconnected. I don't think that Vida saw any conflict at all between her spiritual life and and her political life. Certainly one informed the other. Uh, it, it was the way that that she lived her life um, with a with a great deal of integrity, and it was also how her family lived life. Um, her mother and two of her sisters were also Christian scientists. She lived in a, a, a social and cultural milieu in Melbourne, which was a very progressive city in the world, um, practicing progressive politics in a number of different ways. There were many anti-authoritarian aspects to to the practice of, of a lot of these uh, suffrage campaigners, male and female alike. We've got to remember that there were male suffrage campaigners too. There had to be. I mean, you, you couldn't introduce a vote into parliament to get women their franchise without a man putting that bill up. So there had to be what now we might call male champions of change, but they were actually advocates of the cause the term suffragist is not sex-specific. There were many people at the time in Melbourne, this was a, a cultural milieu in which there was a lot of um, experimentation to do with both spirituality um, and with the way that people live their lives. And, and the Goldsteins were leaders in that social community. And indeed, a couple of the other women whose lives I chart in my book, Your Daughters of Freedom, um, in particular, 
the extraordinary uh, suffrage campaign in Muriel Matters mm. and the artist Dora Meeson Coates. They both also became Christian scientists. It may have been Vida Goldstein's influence, but it was just also part of their lived experience. Uh, this was part of the community that they lived in, the ideas. They were both um, the fashionable, which seems odd to us now, um, but also incredibly radical. And so these deep thinkers, these free thinkers who were wanting to shake up society and change the way that all the rules worked really looked to Christian science as being a framework within which they could practice their faith but also live their lives. Well, I, I just want to thank you both, uh, Dr. Claire Wright and Tara Kutaya, uh, for sharing in this wonderful conversation we've had about Vida Goldstein. In learning about her, I see that her life is really epic in nature. And uh, because of that, I think we've only really scratched the surface in some ways in discussing her. Thanks so much again, Claire and Tara. Thank you. Thanks. It's been wonderful to talk to you. You as well. Thank you for listening to this Seekers and Scholars episode on Reclaiming Vida Goldstein, Superstar of Women's Suffrage. It was great to be in conversation with Dr. Claire Wright, whose book, You Daughters of Freedom, The Australians Who Won the Vote and Inspired the World, provides a deep history of Vida Goldstein and other Australian women who were instrumental in moving society to grant equal political rights for women. Dr. Wright is also the narrator of the audio version of the book. And it was great to hear from Tara Kutaya, a researcher at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, about her experience in learning about Vida Goldstein through the library's collections, as well as through other resources. You can find Tara's article on Vida Goldstein in the library's Women of History series by going to mbelibrary.org woh. Please join us for our next episode for a discussion on spiritual autobiography. We'll be exploring comments from Reverend Dr. Carl Scovel and Judy Hunnicke as they explore the writings of Julian of Norwich and Mary Baker Eddy. Carl Scovel is Minister Emeritus of Boston's King's Chapel, and Judy Hunnicke is Senior Research Archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for joining us in the world of seekers and scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.